Hey guys, good morning. Um, so I'm recording this just to kind of act as sort of like a mini lecture for a lot of you that I know are going to miss due to the pep rally and sort of the interruptions, right? We're having this Thursday, uh, September 8th. Um, again, of course, there's no substitute, right, for reading the material, right, on that American YAP or for uh, you know, getting the notes from someone. So it still might be a good idea to do that. Uh, but let's go ahead and begin. So, you know, where we last left off with the course, right, we had talked about New England colonies and the kind of stability, right? They tended to move in families. They cared about education, like those deluder laws that required schools to be built in the villages and so forth. And then we transition a little bit into Virginia and how that was a polar opposite, right? With low life expectancy, a lot of indentured servants, right? And of course, eventually slavery. And then that very kind of landed structure of that planner society, right? With the planners way up top, kind of freemen slash merchants in the middle, servants and later on slaves and natives kind of way at the bottom. So today we pick up with kind of the roots of slavery and, you know, it's been a while or we really haven't talked about it too much since like the Middle Passage stuff sort of with the age of discovery. But for the roots of slavery, uh, you know, slide kind of as I go over it in class, you know, the key thing to begin is like just numbers wise. Can Hopefully you remember from kind of the first week or two of the course, right, that, you know, from the mid or early kind of time period with the age of discovery all the way through, um, you know, the kind of early 1800s, we're talking, you know, upwards of 10 million or so that are going to go to the new world. Now, something that a lot of students have misconceptions about is that this is the, like the majority ended up in North America or in the U.S. And that is just not true. It's actually a relatively small number. I've seen different things where it's you know, something like less than 10% or uh, close to that. But the vast majority go to Brazil and the Caribbean. And again, it makes kind of sense, right? Because Cuba, a lot of those islands in the Caribbean were the first to be uh, colonized by the, uh, the Spanish and other uh, colonial powers. And so they were exposed to those diseases and those islands, you know, didn't really kind of give you a route to escape if you're one of these natives. So, you know, those populations died out relatively quickly, right, within the first couple of generations. So what were they going to do, right, for growing the sugarcane and all those kind of key cash crops, import slaves, right? The Portuguese had kind of begun doing with some of their colonies on the west coast of Africa. So the vast majority go to the Caribbean and Brazil by far the most. But again, the U.S. deserves kind of a spot on there because, again, of course, later on that will be that will uptick as we get closer to the 1800s. And so uh, good. And a little bit of commentary just on the English view of Africans, very typical of many Europeans at the time. Right. The view of it being very pagan, very uncivilized, of course, race and those views had a part to do with it as well. Um, you know, also a lot of it sometimes even practical, like the idea, again, being you know, the tropical climates and all that. Again, Africans were pretty good at dealing with diseases, especially when compared to Europeans, those tropical diseases. So those are some of the kind of reasons they'll be used for labor. And then just, you know, supply, right? Um, those West Coast colonies or West Coast kingdoms on the kind of West Coast of Africa, right? Gathering slaves and selling them to these Europeans for mostly manufactured goods like guns, cannon, gunpowder, all that stuff. So where it kind of gets to our tale, right, in the situation with Jamestown and the Virginia colony is... You know, this is a little bit weird, but basically early in its history, right, 1607 to roughly, you know, the first maybe 50 years or so, somewhere around there, there's really no defined status for African slaves. And part of that reason is they're very, very low numbers. So, you know, they did kind of didn't get have like a defined sort of status yet. That will come later. But, you know, a lot of times in that early, you know, decades or those early decades kind of defined or lumped in there with indentured servants. So students are usually kind of amazed at that, that you have like this weird pocket where you could have freemen that are African because they were treated as indentures for the first you know, little while in Virginia in that area. But of course, that'll change right after some time. Uh, but again, kind of an interesting way to think about it. 
now again by the time we get to about 1680 the house of burgesses you know kind of cements the the sort of uh, definition of a slave that they are property that uh you know they don't have of course the same rights as the other englishmen and all that stuff so that's where kind of the transition to again from indentured servant to um, you know, african slavery kind of really gains a foothold and the key thing that i try to stress to students is you know once the house of burgesses does this right late 1600s well later on and the Carolinas do it, right? Later on, uh, Maryland's going to do it. Later on, Georgia's going to do it. So everybody kind of follows suits. This is where we start to see that, you know, slaves is property or defined as property. Uh, good. All right, guys, a little bit of kind of an extension of that on regional identity. So what happens over, you know, the late 1600s and through the 1700s is uh, mass numbers of Africans are being, you know, imported and making up big populations, especially of the southern colonies. So everything from, you know, sort of Maryland, Virginia to the south. Remember, all that because of the cash crops, right? Whether it be rice in the Carolinas and things like indigo, also big business. And, of course, tobacco in the Chesapeake or that kind of northern, southern part of the colonies. But just to give you some of the you know, sort of ratios, so South Carolina, about 60%. So over half of their population is going to be African slaves. Virginia, somewhere around 40 to 50%. I mean, compare that to New England, right, which is somewhere probably between 5 and 10%. So again, the reliance on those staple crops, right, looks kind of, you know, plotting everything towards that way. You also have the development of uh, regional identities. And an example I give of this is that Creole culture. Like, you know, already the Europeans had their little spins of, you know, the way they talked in the South is a little bit different than they talk in New England. In New York, they have the Dutch influence, right? All that stuff. Um, well, now you add in a new flavor, a new kind of uh, sort of pathway with Africans. And not only that, some of them have a real complex background, right? We've all heard of things of like, you know, voodoo and stuff like that, right? Well, a lot of that has connections kind of West Africa and where these people come from. And then you have it mixed with the Spanish Caribbean stuff that they get exposed to when they're sold in the Caribbean. And then they're transplanted over here in the United States, right? So, you know, sometimes you have a mix of languages. You Sometimes you have, you know, even like uh, dishes, right? Like cooking and stuff like that, certain goods you use. So, you know, it gives rise to kind of a new pathway, a new sort of subculture, uh, for, you know, many African-Americans that are uh, in servitude and stuff like that. So very, very fascinating. And you see elements of that today, like places like Louisiana and to some extent East Texas and other parts of the U.S. Uh, still to this day. All right, guys, uh, one also important thing to point out is in 1739, we have the first sort of major slave uprising in the United States history. You know, students always tend to ask, right, like, why did the slaves fight back more, all this stuff? Well, they did. It's just... Um, you know, it's very, very difficult when you're defined as property and, you know, your owner can literally destroy you with no, you know, repercussions. That's a pretty tough situation. But the first major one happened in uh, South Carolina in 1739. It's called the Stono Uprising. Um, and, you know, the key thing that I try to tell students also is when these things are crushed, they're very, very brutally crushed because, you know, for a lot of these landowners, there's nothing more terrifying than having your maybe laborers overthrow, right, or kill their caretakers or kill their owners, so, you know, they'll be stamped out really, really quickly. All right, guys, the uh, next one kind of deals with economic competition and mercantilism, right? The idea that the power with the most resources, with the most wealth is the most powerful. And I won't spend too much time. Just the main thing here is, you know, the English are big kind of buyers into this sort of theory or this sort of view. And it, it's going to influence them because they're facing a lot of rivalry from the Netherlands, from the Dutch, in that the Dutch have kind of carved out a cool spot where they are sort of like the you know, sort of main shipping power around that time. I mean, England, of course, is really, really powerful, but the English are really feeling pressure from the Dutch from a small, you know, kingdom in kind of north, uh, northern Europe. 
And so this is going to lead to some further stuff and rules, new rules that are going to be passed by the British to kind of counteract that, counteract that a little bit. All right, guys, and the next one, regulating trade, colonial trade. So here's where England's kind of, you know, get, doing that knee-jerk reaction to the Dutch rivalry, to the whole trying to rein in the colonies a little bit more, right? Up to this point, they've kind of been allowed to do their own thing. So in 1660, they begin a series of uh, acts known as the Navigation Acts. And these are important because up to this point, England's been really chill with the colonies, not really forcing them to do certain things for the most part. But this is kind of going to change. This is the first sort of, sort of clue that we have that England's policy is sort of changing. And this involves basically key goods in the colonies, things like tobacco, but even tar, timber in the north. But this could kind of go on and on. Sugarcane is a huge one. You know, but the idea for England is we need to be able to control these goods and they need to be coming to England to enrich us, to make us more powerful. You know, the fear is the French, the Dutch, the Spanish, if they're taking any of those goods or, you know, Americans or the British are trading with any of those powers, we're losing out. We're losing on that wealth. So that was kind of the idea. Apologies for the bell. Um, again, take a look at the PowerPoint, all that stuff, right? The big thing, again, England's getting more strict with their regional policy. And if I need to review a little bit in class, I'll do so the next time I see you guys. But hope this helps a little bit. Have a great day. I'll talk to you next time.